Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Here are a couple of musical terms that you may have heard of somewhere before. Number one is earworm. That's when a clip of a song keeps running through your head over and over and over again on a loop and it drives you crazy. Everybody's had one of those. Term number two is mondegreen. That's a misheard lyric. And a great example is in Jimi Hendrix's Purple Haze. He sings, excuse me while I kiss the sky. But millions of people hear that as, excuse me while I kiss this guy. There are lots and lots of Mondegreens in popular music. I propose that we need a third term. And we need a word to describe that opinion that overcomes us when we believe one song sounds almost exactly like another. And I know you know what I mean. You hear a new song, and this brief sense of deja vu fills your head as your brain tries to correlate its musical database with what you're currently hearing. And when all the processing is complete, you might think, A, hey, somebody ripped off artist X, or B, oh boy, somebody's going to get sued for that. But you know something? It's it's not that simple. Far, far from it. Welcome to the murky world of unfortunate sonic coincidences. This is the Ongoing History of New Music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. Hello again, I'm Alan Cross, and I'm, I'm still looking for a word that describes what I was just talking about. I tried crowdsourcing the concept, and I did get a bunch of suggestions. For example, synohymns, like that one. There's homophone, although that's already a word. It describes a word that sounds the same, but has a different meaning in spelling, like so and sow. Homolira is another one I liked. Liredem is Latin for song same. And riffing on that, lyrisimilis. That's similar song in Latin. I thought the Germans might have something for this because, you, you know, the Germans have words for everything. The best I could do is Song, again, similar song. And using similar principles, I came up with Saruparaga, that's, that's Hindi. But then I thought of, well, what about Deja Tune? Or is that too cutesy? Maybe we should start with an example of what I'm talking about. All right, 1968, Beatles recorded a ridiculously simple song in the key of B-flat major, although it's easily transposable into the key of C. And it goes like this.
You got that? Pretty much all of Western civilization is familiar with that song. Okay, fast forward now to March 1999, when The Offspring released this single from their Americana album. The Offspring with Why Don't You Get a Job, which sounds an awful lot like the Beatles' Oobla Dee Oobla Da, which was released on the White Album 31 years earlier. Now, this is the kind of thing I want to talk about. These unfortunate sonic coincidences that are sometimes tolerated, sometimes litigated, but are almost never ignored. As far as I know, there was never any public action involving The Offspring and the Beatles. They just treated it as some kind of homage, I guess. Just as there was nothing involving the Dandy Warhols. And the Rolling Stones' Brown Sugar. Or Delta Goodrum and her song, Sitting on Top of the World. and Rebellion from Arcade Fire. No legal action was taken with the above, as far as I know. But we've all heard about Robin Thicke versus Marvin Gaye and Led Zeppelin versus Spirit. So what constitutes plagiarism, theft, copyright infringement, and just plain coincidence? This takes some very, very careful explaining. First, though, we have to go through some basic music theory. Western music is based on a scale of 12 notes. All of these notes are related to each other mathematically by a series of ratios known as intervals of a semitone. And it goes like this. Playing those notes in certain combinations or patterns reveal things like chords, melodies, harmonies, and so on. And these are the building blocks of our music. Everything from the greatest Mozart symphony to the dumbest pop song are constructed from this stuff. Now, at first, you might think that there are an infinite number of ways these notes can be used. Not so. The numbers are very, very big, but definitely finite. Somewhere around 479,000,600. And that's just if you play each one of them once. But if you accept that there are many ways to play one note, you know, whole notes, half notes, quarter notes, eighth notes, sixteenth notes, thirty-second notes, you end up with a much bigger number, somewhere north of just one quintillion possible combinations. That's a one followed by 18 zeros. And if you played a new combination of notes every second, it would take you 33,063,236,360 years, which is at least five times the age of the universe. Again, that's just for non-repeating sequences using the 12 notes of the chromatic scale. 
But hang on. You just can't stick a bunch of tones and semitones together and expect them to sound good. Music has to sound pleasing to the ear and has to reach into the soul, right? And this is where things get complicated. So despite all the talk about big numbers, there are only so many ways in which to order these sounds. And if we narrow down what we're looking for, say the sounds that go into making a rock song, the numbers quickly get much, much smaller. And at some point, people are going to inevitably start repeating things. In other words, songs are not like snowflakes. At some point, there's going to be duplication. Now, whether that duplication is intentional or not is another matter, but we'll get to that. Here's another example of the kind of thing I'm talking about. This is a clip of a Tom Petty song called Mary Jane's Last Dance, which was released in 1993. Now let's go ahead about 13 years for the Red Hot Chili Peppers Stadium Arcadium album. This is where we find a song called Danny California. Getting born in the state of Mississippi, Papa was a copper and the mama was a hippie. In Alabama, she was swinging a hammer. Price you gotta pay when you pick the panorama. She never knew that. Got that? Tom Petty? Chili Peppers. All right, so what happened here? Was this the Chili Peppers blatantly and consciously copying Tom Petty? Well, if so, that's plagiarism, the act of appropriating someone else's work and passing it off as your own. Or was this just a case of an unfortunate sonic coincidence? Now, Petty did not get bent out of shape about this one. Here's what he told Rolling Stone. I seriously doubt there is any negative intent here, and a lot of rock and roll songs sound alike. Ask Chuck Berry. The Strokes took American Girl for their song Last Night, and I saw an interview with him saying where they actually admitted it, and that made me laugh out loud. I was like, okay, good for you. If someone took my song, note for note, and stole it maliciously, then maybe I'd sue. But I don't believe in lawsuits much. I think there are enough frivolous lawsuits in this country without people fighting over pop songs. Good for you, Tom. Fine. But let's roll ahead to the spring of 2014, when Sam Smith released this huge hit single. Oh, won't you stay with me? Cause you're all I need. This ain't love, it's clear to see. But darling, which many people recognized as being similar to Tom Petty's 1989 hit, I Won't Back Down. In this case, lawyers did get involved. And in October 2014, there was an out-of-court settlement wherein Tom Petty was awarded songwriting royalties from the Sam Smith song. Oasis has been nailed a number of times for wearing their influences on their sleeves a little too clearly. 
There's a story from the days Oasis was working on their debut album in a communal rehearsal space in Manchester. It was just one of these places where a lot of groups would set up to jam. And according to the story, other people in this complex had to listen to Oasis play the same 10 songs over and over again. And after a while, it became very obvious to everybody else that some of these songs were eerily similar to some very familiar riffs and melodies. And at one point, one of the other bands using the facility, and we don't know who, posted a sign on the door of the Oasis rehearsal room, and it read, Get Your Own Riffs. So, yeah, they've been in trouble a number of times, and I have an example. Have a listen to this. It's Shaker Maker from the first Oasis album, Definitely Maybe, which was released in 1994. Okay, try to keep that melody in your head, okay? That's Oasis from 1994. Now, listen to this from 1970. It's a group called The New Seekers. Not only was this a massive worldwide hit single, a cover version was also a big hit around the same time. And it was all derived from one of the most popular and most famous Coca-Cola commercials of all time. I'd like to teach the world to sing Now, in this case, there was a lawsuit, and Oasis, to their credit, didn't fight it very hard. I mean, whenever the band played live, Liam Gallagher would often goof around by going into the lyrics of the Coke commercial instead of what he was supposed to be singing. So, not much of a defense then. Bonehead, who was playing guitar for Oasis at the time, had this to say, eh, we ripped it off, so they had the right to sue us. Fair enough. People will steal from other bands, but change the lyrics. We just did the same thing, but kept some of the same lyrics. We drink Pepsi now. Oasis was also taken to court by Stevie Wonder over a song called Step Out from the What's the Story Morning Glory album, which sounded way too much like his 1966 hit, Uptight Everything's Alright. He won, and all subsequent editions of the album had that song removed. And now, if you look at any post-Morning Glory version of that song, you will see that it's credited to Noel Gallagher and three other people. So instead of 100% of the royalties, Noel gets just 25%, thanks to Stevie Wonder's complaining. And Oasis was also sued by Monty Python. They insisted that the 1994 song Whatever sounded way too much like a song from a 1973 sketch called How Sweet to Be an Idiot. The writer of the Python song, a guy named Neil Innes, also won a co-writing credit on Oasis's Whatever. Okay, moving on. There was rather a big stink involving Coldplay and metal guitarist Joe Satriani. In 2004, Satriani released an album called Is There Love in Space? And on that record is a piece entitled If I Could Fly. And it goes like this. Four years later, Coldplay released the Viva La Vida album, and the title track, um, well, just have a listen. Bells, 
Okay, you, you can see the problem. When, when you compare the melodies of that Coldplay song to If I Could Fly from Joe Satriani, um, well, let's just say that the visceral reaction from the public was predictable. Coldplay ripped off Joe! Okay, hang on. That's the allegation. Now you gotta prove it. Well, you'll say, well, the two pieces sound the same. They, they had to have copied it. Again, you gotta prove it. Prove that Coldplay consciously plagiarized Joe. Prove that there was malicious intent. Prove that there was intellectual and artistic dishonesty in theft. Just because a couple of songs sound alike does not constitute guilt. In this case, though, Satriani did file a lawsuit against Coldplay, and in the end, there was some kind of settlement that was sealed by the court. Coldplay denied any wrongdoing and did not admit any kind of guilt. Joe went away with a settlement and has kept his word by keeping all the details secret. In this case, it appears we have an unfortunate sonic coincidence where Coldplay independently discovered a melody that had already been published and copyrighted by someone else. Action was taken, a settlement was reached, and everybody moved on. This sort of thing happens all the time. Sonic similarities between two songs are discovered. Legal teams on both sides of the equation are mobilized. Discussions are held, usually very calmly. And in the end, everything is settled behind closed doors with the public not seeing anything or being privy to anything. I'll show you what I mean. When we come back, I will tell you one of those stories. Hold on. You're listening to the Ongoing History of New Music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. Before we examine any more unfortunate sonic coincidences, we should look at the sorts of things that aren't protected by copyright. Song titles, for one. If you wanted to, you could write a piano ballad and call it Smells Like Teen Spirit, and there is nothing anybody could do. Wouldn't be a good idea, but legally, you could do it if you wanted to and not get sued for it. Rhythms and beats are not protected. That's why you can have Bo Diddley. And Iggy Pop. And U2. And Jet. But before you say, hey, 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 everybody should write Bo Diddley a check, we have to go back to 1899 for a song by Charles Hale called At a Darktown Cakewalk. And before that, there's the old seven-note shaving a haircut two-bits rhythm. You know? Another thing that can't be copyrighted is chord progressions. If you Google Axis of Awesome, you'll find an Australian comedy group who shows how dozens of songs are built on the exact same four chords. Now, I'm not saying that what I'm about to tell you happened with the three examples that we've heard so far, but I can tell you that it has happened to somebody I know personally. The bands involved were superstars in their day and sold millions upon millions of records. I'm going to just leave the band names out of it because I, I'm sort of sworn to secrecy on this one. Together with two other people, my friend wrote a song that appeared on an album in 1985. Not only did the album go multi-platinum, but the song he co-wrote was released as a single and reached well into the top 20 on the singles charts. So, nice little paycheck for him. A couple of years later, he gets a call. The call is from a manager of a band in Europe. Uh, hi, he said. 
My band is just about to release an album that we expect will be very, very big. However, it has come to our attention that one of the songs in this record has certain, uh, shall we say, pronounced melodic and structural similarities to your song. Trust us that they did not deliberately rip you off. It's just that they independently discovered this same melody and structure, and it's just too late for us to go back and change it. So here's what we propose. We would like to cut you a deal. And here's how it worked. In exchange for not suing the band from Europe, my friend ended up with a basic piece of the action for this new song. The more the album sold, the more he got. If the song was released as a single, he got more. And the higher the song reached on the charts, the bigger the checks. Sweet, right? And it gets better. The album by this European group eventually sold 8 million copies. And the song in question was released as a single, and it went all the way to number one in America. So, my buddy ended up getting some major league royalty checks that I'm sure continue to come in to this very day for a song he didn't write. For him, this unfortunate sonic coincidence was very fortunate. I know these deals happen a lot in the music biz. It's just a very effective way of keeping the peace. Here's another situation where two people on opposite sides of the Atlantic ended up with the same musical idea without knowing that the other existed. We start with Sum 41. Let's have a listen to their 2002 song, Still Waiting. Sum 41 and Still Waiting, released in 2002. But then we have this. It's a single from Italy by a guy named Neck, N-E-K. It was called Almenos Ahora. And it sounded like this. Of course, the internet then took over and mashed the two together and gave us this. Some 41 haters were quick to jump on them, but as far as I've ever been able to figure out, Next Song came out in 2003, about a year after Still Waiting. Same melody line, but as far as we know, discovered totally independently. Everybody here is innocent. Now let's look at a gray area. One of the big singles off the Foo Fighters' Sonic Highways album was Something From Nothing. And I bring your attention to this particular passage about 90 seconds into the song. I'm going to argue that this is a subtle tribute to Ronnie James Dio and his song, Holy Diver. Dave Grohl's a well-known metal fan, and there is no way he would have not been aware of this Dio song. Not exactly the same, but it was enough for some people to start yelling things like, RIP OFF! Again, I prefer the homage explanation myself, 
and as far as I know, there was no legal action. On the other hand, there was the case of Elastica versus Wire. Elastica was one of the great bands of the Britpop era of the middle 90s, and Britpop was all about celebrating Britishness. That meant acknowledging those who came before to blaze a trail for British rock. However, it was possible to pay a little too much homage to certain songs and bands. Now, have a listen to this. This is Wire with a track called Three Girl Rumba that came out in 1977. And again, the name of the song is Three Girl Rumba from Wire, 1977. And if you had asked Justine Frischman, the leader of Elastica, about some of her favorite bands, she would have said, hey, Wire, I was a huge Wire fan. In fact, she admitted to being such a big fan that she deliberately nicked some of Three Girl Rumba for one of her songs. You know, as sort of a tribute or something. Elastica with Connection from 1994, which sounds awfully familiar to Three Girl Rumba from Wire from 1977. And yes, people did take note. But there really wasn't a need to haul everybody into court to prove that Elastica had ripped off Wire because Justine Frischman just admitted it. Yeah, you got me. But damages had to be levied. And the ruling was that Elastica had to surrender a certain amount of the royalties from that first album to Wire, which, you know, given her admission of guilt, seems kind of fair. And it wasn't the only issue with that first Elastica album. The Stranglers, a British band that was formed in 1974, noticed that the Elastica song Waking Up sounded awfully like one of their songs from 77 called No More Heroes. Same result, a piece of that first Elastica album was awarded to the Stranglers. Not an unfortunate sonic coincidence, it was an actual case of... Well, there's, there's no way to get around it. Theft. A well-intentioned theft, but theft nonetheless. I'm not totally clear on Kurt Cobain's intentions with this next case, but it did cause some problems for a while. As he was writing Come As You Are, he had this nagging feeling that he had heard it someplace before. And it's possible he did. Let's take a listen. And let's see if this rings any bells with you. Come Were you paying attention? Was there anything about that song that could have created a legal problem for Nirvana? Well, actually, there was. It was the opening guitar bit. Now, let's pitch that up a few percent. Make it go a little faster. Now let's listen to this song. The band is Killing Joke, and the year is 1985. I 
for the sake of clarity, let's pitch that one down. See the problem, right? Jazz Coleman, the singer and principal songwriter for Killing Joke, noticed the similarities. But it's very unclear if he really ever did anything about it. Some say that legal action was initiated, but that it was terminated after Kurt committed suicide in 1994. Others suggest that there never was any legal action because Killing Joke respected Nirvana too much. And even if it had gone to court, it's actually rather doubtful that Killing Joke could have made a case. Because another thing you can't copyright, and I didn't know this until I started researching this, you can't copyright a guitar riff, which also takes us back to that Foo Fighters' Ronnie James Dio case. And it also explains this from Green Day, back in 1995. That's Brain Stew from Green Day, right? Well, here's Chicago and 25 or 6 to 4 from 1970. And now here's Babe, I'm Gonna Leave You from Led Zeppelin in 1967. Which, by the way, was conceived around the same time that George Harrison wrote While My Guitar Gently Weeps for the Beatles. Same riff, but different tempo. Whatever the case, all is forgiven in the Nirvana Killing Joke situation. Dave Grohl is great friends with Killing Joke. He's actually performed and toured with them. So I guess it's, it's all good. In a moment, more strange cases of unfortunate sonic coincidences. And we're going to talk about why things might even get weirder in the years ahead. Now, back to the ongoing history of new music. The podcast edition with Alan Cross. We're looking at situations where two songs apparently sound the same, often too much the same. And here are a couple of very weird cases. In 1990, New Order was sued by John Denver for copyright infringement. And yeah, that John Denver, the country singer that looked like a Muppet who sang songs like Thank God I'm a Country Boy. In 1969, one of Denver's songs became a number one hit for Peter, Paul, and Mary. It was called Leaving on a Jet Plane. I'm But then in 1990, New Order released this. So you be the judge. What the hell is happening? I can't think of everything. I don't know what it is or who I'm talking to. But I know that I'm okay. New Order with Run from 1990. Did you hear any similarities between that and the John Denver penned Leaving on a Jet Plane? New Order did, which is why they didn't even bother to fight back. An out-of-court settlement made it all go away. Finally, we need to talk about the infamous Blurred Lines trial that featured the song from Robin Thicke against the estate of Marvin Gaye. They believe that Blurred Lines felt, and that's an important word, felt too much like Marvin Gaye's 1977 song, Got to give it up. Here's a comparison I found on YouTube. Most, baby, you 
After a court case where both songs were compared note by note, a jury found that Blurred Lines infringed on Got to Give It Up and awarded $7.2 million to the plaintiffs. Now, let's go back to that phrase, note by note. This is really important to understand. When something like this comes to trial, you would think that the judge and the jurors would simply listen to the two recordings in court and make a call. Well, no, no, that's not how it works. Both sides get deep into music theory with their arguments. And the only thing the judge and jury has to go on are the notes that make up the song. Now, the recording may sound the same, but that introduces other elements like production techniques and outboard effects, which changes the nature of the song. The only thing that matters are just the notes, how the song looks when it's plotted out on sheet music. This is how Led Zeppelin beat the charges that Stairway to Heaven was lifted from a 1967 instrumental by a band called Spirit. On record, you put the two side by side, you can hear the similarities. But if you take each track, plot it out on paper, you can see that the differences between the two are very, very stark and pronounced. Therefore, Led Zeppelin, not guilty. It's tricky stuff, this songwriting business. And it's only going to get trickier as time goes on because we're kind of running out of melodies. Back in a moment. More of the ongoing history of new music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. I'm forever getting email from listeners who ask, doesn't song X sound like song Y? What a bunch of copycats, or maybe they say something worse. As you can see, though, this sort of thing happens all the time. And it's often very, very, very accidental. And just because two songs sound superficially the same doesn't mean they actually are when you pop the hood and start looking carefully. If this is your thing, these Deja tunes, try a website called soundsjustlike.com. And there's plenty there to keep you busy for hours. If you ever need more from me, go to my website. It's a ajournalofmusicalthings.com. I update it 365 days a year. Get the newsletter. It's free. There's never any spam. You'll get the day's cool music news stories in your inbox by 10 a.m. Eastern on weekdays. And you can always email me at alan at alancross.ca. And I always answer everything. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. Talk to you next time. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the ongoing history of new music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast at iTunes and through Google Play. 